for those of you who haven't uh, looked down at the bulletins, our uh, text this morning is in Luke chapter 9. It's uh, verses 57 to 62. I'm going to read through it in a second and pray. But before I do that, I do want to dismiss our kids. Normally, uh, they, uh, they've been here with us, but once a month we do offer a special kind of servicey thing across uh, the, the, the hall in the, uh, the other room. Um, it's led by uh, Jeff Presnell and John Wood. It's for kids who are sixth grade and below. We have childcare for four-year-olds and below in the same building, uh, but for sixth grade and below is a time to interact around God's word and, and sing some songs as well. All right. Well, um, again, our passage this morning is Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Um, but we're going to begin reading in verse 51. Uh, one, because that's an important bit of context, but it's also just a really important verse overall in the structure and content of Luke's gospel. So uh, while our text is 57 and 62, I'm going to read from verse 51. And this is the inspired and inerrant word of God. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. That man said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, that's our text this morning. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Lord, we pray this morning as we look to you through your word that you would bless our congregation with a right understanding, Lord, of your word, that you would bless us with hearts that are ready to hear and ready to receive what you would have for us to hear and receive this morning. We pray that uh, these, these words and these truths would find fertile soil, that we would be encouraged and convicted in whatever ways, Lord, is appropriate for our lives. And we pray this, Lord, not only for River City Grace this morning and this sermon, but also for Pastor Greg as he is guest preaching elsewhere, Lord. And we pray this also for uh, Sam Cook tonight in evening service, Lord. May your word be glorified from this pulpit and every pulpit today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we are focusing on verses 57 to 62, but the reason why I read from verse 51, no, I'm not going to exposit the calling down fire from heaven and those sorts of things. Um, really, we're focusing on, on verse 51 and how it's repeated in verse 53, because at the point that we're at in the context of the Gospel of Luke, this is a massive narrative shift. Uh, but 
verses 1-1 all the way to verse 950 is a sort of prologue in the Gospel of Luke. It spans over three decades of time, and everything that we've seen has really been a lead-up to this particular moment. When Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, what Luke is saying is, it's time for Jesus to go to the cross. And from this point on in the book of Luke, Jesus is in the northernmost part of Samaria. He's going to be making a rather circuitous route to Jerusalem, but the rest of the book of Luke is Jesus getting to Jerusalem and getting to the cross where he will die for the sins of his people, for all those who believe in him. And at this point in the story, it's time for Jesus to do that, and everything in Jesus' life so far has been leading up to this moment. The cross is why he came in the first place. Everything that has happened to him has, been, has occurred with an eye to getting to this moment and eventually the cross. He was born in the first place. He took on a human nature and a human body so that on the cross he might be a representative for humanity. He lived a perfect and sinless life in part because as God he can do nothing less. But he lived a perfect and sinless life under the authority of his parents, under the authority of the law, under the authority of the governing structure of the day, so that when he went to the cross, he would go not as a criminal, not as a sinner, but the perfect, spotless lamb of God. And on the cross, he would bear the wrath, God's righteous wrath, for the sins of all of those who would believe in him. Every evil thought, every evil deed, all of those evil things that we have committed, those who would trust in Christ, were laid on him, and he would suffer there more than any other person ever would. And facing that, Luke tells us in verse 51, is not easy. He had to set his face to go to Jerusalem. For me, at work, I have a phone, and it tells me where I have to be. It beeps, and I go to one meeting. It beeps, and I go to another meeting. It's an easy pivot for me. It's not that way for Jesus here. Jesus has to resolve to go to the cross. This is going to be a place of unimaginable suffering for him. And the journey there isn't going to be fun either. He's going to face abandonment, betrayal, physical suffering, rejection. The very people who are going to welcome him are going to call for his blood days later. So he girds up his loins. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He resolves to go where he will accomplish the salvation of all of those who follow him in truth. And so when we get to our text in verse 57, it's no accident in the sovereign providence of God that as the good shepherd goes to save his sheep by suffering for them, he encounters three men who would be his sheep, three men who would be his disciples, who would follow after him. Except unfortunately for these men, but fortunately for us, these men all suffer from some kind of misconception some error in thinking, some misconstrual of what it means to follow Jesus. They have some flaw in their thinking about what being a disciple of Christ looks like. And these misconceptions, mind you, they aren't unique relics of the day. They aren't things that existed back then and don't apply now. These are things, them and their children, are errors that still plague the church today. So in our passage, we see Jesus encountering these men, diagnosing and correcting their misconceptions one by one. And as he does so, he makes clear what following him in truth looks like. As he goes to save his disciples, he clarifies for these three men and through them for us what being a disciple of Christ really looks like. Because we don't get to decide what following Jesus means. That's not on us to do. 
We don't get to come to Jesus on our terms or in our way. To come to Jesus in truth means to come to him as he demands and to follow him as he requires and expects. And that's what Jesus is going to make clear in these three encounters. Between all three of them and Jesus' correction of them, we are going to see, as this sermon is titled, the high call of following Jesus. You could have also called it the hard call of following Jesus. Now, as you probably guessed, my outline is pretty straightforward. We got three encounters, three corrections, and we're going to go through them one by one, kind of making some application as we go. But our first issue, our first encounter, is in verses 57 to 58. And here, if you're taking notes, I would call this the reality of following Jesus, the reality of following Jesus. Because in this first encounter, we see a man who fundamentally doesn't seem to know what Jesus is about. Now, you would know that based on what he says. Uh, This guy starts off strong. In verse 57, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, at first blush, this is the gold standard, right? Jesus is walking. He doesn't have to pause and call somebody out. This guy stops Jesus. This guy comes up to Jesus. This guy makes a profession and and says, I want to be your disciple. But more than that, I will follow you wherever you go. That's some gold standard stuff right there. And Luke refers to him as someone, but Matthew has a parallel account where he's, uh, we're told he's a scribe. So this is not some like, you know, ignorant guy who saw Jesus do a miracle and just blindly says, ooh, I want to follow him. This is someone who is biblically literate. He would, we would presume, know what he's about. So this biblically literate, Old Testament literate man comes up to Jesus, he pledges his allegiance, he offers him to follow wherever he goes. And I will tell you right now, this is what every preacher in the history of the world wants to hear, right? Every time at the end of a sermon someone says, if anyone wants to come talk to us afterwards, this is secretly what we're hoping for, right? This is what we want. We want someone to walk up and say, I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, That's the gold standard. There are churches in America where if this happened, that guy would be getting baptized that night and membership papers that afternoon. But Jesus doesn't do that. If there was no flaw in his thinking, no lack of sincerity, no issue here, Jesus probably would have done something along those lines. Great. Nice to meet you. This is Peter. He'll show you the ropes. But Jesus doesn't do that. He gives this man a very subtle, but I think hopefully very direct and clear correction. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Instead of welcoming this guy with open arms, Jesus says that while even animals have a place in the world, he does not. And in saying this, he is making, I think, a subtle reference to the impending cross. Jesus is saying that as a man headed to Jerusalem and to his death, he has no place anymore in the world. He is being taken out of it. Yes, he will probably sleep in a bed between now and his crucifixion. We know he stays in houses between then and there. But he no longer belongs in the world. He is the lamb marked out for slaughter, heading to the altar to be sacrificed. What Jesus is really doing in communicating this to this man is explaining that he has a misunderstanding about where Jesus is headed and what he is about and what that's going to look like. And I think to understand what's happening here, we do have to understand what is a key theological problem of the day. See, in fairness, there were people, many people, who when they saw Jesus, when they saw his teaching ministry, his miracle ministry, the way he, he, he taught with authority, they legitimately thought that he was the Messiah. 
there was a legitimate expectation that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, if that strikes you as confusing, bear with me. Um, an example of this, just to show you that it's, it's true, uh, is in Luke 19. Uh, Luke 19, verse 11. You can turn there if you like. But what we read there in that verse is, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was new, uh, near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There is an expectation that Jesus is the Messiah. You don't believe the kingdom of God is going to appear unless you think you're looking at the Messiah. So there is a groundswell of people who believe this. And I think it explains why there's people who are welcoming him into the city on one day, and a few days later they're calling for his death on another. The problem is not that they don't think he's the Messiah. The problem is they have a completely wrong view of what the Messiah is supposed to do. They misunderstand what he is there to accomplish. Their view of the Messiah is more the second coming view of the Messiah. He is the righteous king who is going to come and rule over the world. The Messiah is going to come in their view, and he is going to throw off Roman rule. He is going to restore Israel to a place of glory in the world. We're talking about the days of David and Solomon. And Israel is not going to be some backwater country. It's going to be the capital of the world. The nations are going to come and bow down to Jerusalem. What Israel is expecting is for Israel to take the place of Rome, essentially. That's what they're expecting. They have a very wrong understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do. They have no concept of the Messiah as the suffering servant sent to atone for their sins. So they thought when Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, it's going to be as a conquering king. And of course, those expectations get hopelessly dashed when Jesus is arrested, tried, convicted, and crucified. But until that happens, there is this groundswell of hope and expectation about what Jesus coming to Jerusalem means. And I think this guy in this encounter is one of those people. In his mind, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as that conquering king. In his mind, he is going to be clothed in fine apparel, seated on a throne and putting his head on a pillow. In his mind, Jesus is going to begin a glorious and peaceful reign, maybe not at first, but eventually a glorious and peaceful reign over a unified and protected Israel. Which is probably why this guy is so enthusiastic about following Jesus wherever he goes. He's like someone who in the 1980s saw the potential for Apple and wanted to buy a bunch of stock. He thinks by getting into the ground floor of this Messiah business that it's going to be a benefit to him. He's going to have a place of glory in the Messiah's new administration. He's going to have a place of privilege, perhaps even a place of wealth. This man, like many in our day, has fundamentally misunderstood what the Messiah was there to do. And that misunderstanding is the basis for his profession of desire to follow Jesus, his willingness to sign up. So Jesus, recognizing that this man is coming to him with the wrong view of what Jesus is there to do, and therefore the wrong view of what following him looks like and is going to mean, tells this guy that he isn't signing up for what he thinks it is. By telling him the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Jesus is telling this man that his mission isn't what he thinks it is, and following Jesus is not likely going to be a, a path to the health and wealth and prosperity that he thinks it is. Following a Jesus who has set his face to go to Jerusalem means following him to his death. It means serving a sacrificial lamb and not a conquering lion. It means dying to self and taking up one's cross, as Jesus says earlier in chapter 9. 
And later, it's going to mean going out into the world to preach about that lamb and to live as he directs in the face of a hostile world, facing rejection, persecution, and death at every turn. This guy has fundamentally misunderstood Jesus' mission. He has misunderstood what following Jesus looks like, and he has come to Jesus not in repentance and faith, but as the means of achieving a greater place in the world. And we don't have to look terribly far to see that sort of attitude or perspective or misconception in our day and age, do we? We have all sorts of examples of people and churches with similar misconceptions as to what it means to follow Jesus. Most obviously, we could point to the evil, satanic prosperity gospel that turns Jesus into merely a ticket into uh, financial and social prosperity. But we could also look at the churches who have chosen to redefine the mission of Jesus, redefine it away from the proclamation of his death and resurrection, the very things that he set his face to accomplish, and redefine it as whatever they think is more pressing or more urgent, whether that's ending hunger or homelessness or taking over school boards and fighting a cultural war. They redefined it in their own image and not the mission of their savior. We could also point to what is truly a frightening epidemic of so-called Christians in our day who are more than happy to follow Jesus on their terms, the way they want, and to the extent that they're willing to do it. This man's error and its children plague our church in, in our day and age, which means we need to hear, really hear, what Jesus is saying to this man. Jesus wants them him and us to know that if anyone wants to be his disciple, they must understand what that means through the lens of his saving mission. Following Jesus is inseparable from what he is doing in the world. And we who would follow Jesus in truth have to understand his saving mission because that is the primary work that we are left here to accomplish. Let me say it this way. To the extent that we understand Jesus' saving mission in the world, if we understand what he was incarnated to do, what he died to do, what he was resurrected to do, and what he is doing right now at the hand, right hand of the Father, then we will understand what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus' saving work in the world is the context for everything that we do as Christians and as a church. It determines how we come to him in the first place, namely in repentance and faith as our only hope for forgiveness and righteousness. It colors our obedience, how and when and why we obey on a daily basis to him. It dictates what we do, how we function as a church. It drives our prayer life for ourselves, for our families, for our neighbors. And it allows us to put into right perspective everything that we might have to endure or suffer in this life. The saving mission of Jesus is the north star of the Christian life. And if we want to not go astray from following Jesus, if we want to not veer off from the path that he leads us, we must have a right understanding of the mission of Christ, which is what Jesus is ultimately pointing out here to this man. Now, as important as that first correction is, there are more that Jesus encounters, and that brings us to our second man. And this man is someone who seems to misunderstand the We'll call it the priority of following Jesus. If you're taking notes, he misunderstands the priority of following Jesus. It's a slightly bit more complicated than that, but that's a fine word, the priority of following Jesus. So let me read that exchange. This is verses 59 to 60. 
says, to another, he said, follow me. But he, that man, said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay, so this encounter does begin slightly different than the first one. And in fact, it is uh, the odd duck out of the three. And number one and number three, both of the guys, as we see, come to Jesus and volunteer to follow him. This is the one example where Jesus calls somebody out. And calling somebody out is the right turn of phrase. He's not offering this guy uh, a chance to follow him. He's not inviting him. He is ordering this man, you, follow me. It's a directive. It's an imperative. And I think it's important, though, for our purpose to really look hard at this guy's reaction because I think his initial reaction is yes. He doesn't say no. It's a technical yes. First, he refers to Jesus as Lord. And, and while he does ask permission to bury his father, he asks to do that first. That indicates that he plans on following what, you know, the, the, the command to follow Jesus. And he doesn't tell Jesus, hey, I'm not ready. I have a lot of things to get in order, and eventually, you know, I'm sure I'll get to the place where I'm ready to follow you. I'll, fo- I'll find you afterwards. He asks permission to go and do something. And I think... I'm dating myself here, but uh, I think this is kind of like what it was like when I was a kid. I would, you know, Saturday morning cartoons were a really big thing. Um, I loved them. And so if you woke up before, what it was like, 8 o'clock, whatever it was, when Saturday morning cartoons came on, and this is back in the day where you actually had to watch them on a TV with commercials. But if you woke up before 8 or whatever that time was, uh, my brother and sister and I, we would play. And inevitably, we'd make kind of a mess of the house. And then 8 o'clock, though, clockwork. We sat down and we watched our cartoons. And my mom and dad would come out sometime later from, from, from waking up, sleeping in, and they would see the house, a train wreck, right, as kids do, and they'd see us watching TV. And they would say, clean up the toys, often more sternly than that, but clean up the toys. And uh, I'm not going to say we obeyed every single time, certainly not, but imagine if I had said, sure, dad, absolutely, but can I wait until the next commercial? Can I, I'll do it, but just can I just have like five more minutes until the commercial starts? That's akin to what this guy is doing here. It's akin to what this guy is doing here. It'd be better if, yes, I jumped up and obediently, uh, sorry, immediately obeyed. But I'm not saying no. I'm merely asking permission to delay a little tiny bit. Now, unlike me, who just wants to watch the Flintstones or whatever for a few months longer, this guy has a pretty good reason to want to delay things. He has to go bury his father. Now, honoring one's parents is a biblical requirement. Hopefully, all agree on that. And I think, hopefully, we can agree that being casually indifferent to the dead body of your father is probably not honoring him. We should care what happens and, and how that looks. Uh, we've got a family obligation. I don't know if this guy was you know, a single child and his dad was a widower, but there's probably other people in his life who are going to have to share in the burden of, of you know, entombing their father it's, it's a hassle, it's, it's painful, it's not cheap, it's, it's, it, there are things that go into it. And so he, he probably has the responsibility towards his family as well in doing that. This is not a bad thing that he wants to do. And that's not the problem here. The problem is not that he simply wants to put off following Jesus. This isn't like somebody who says, I'll get baptized on my deathbed. It's the fact that he wants to go do that first. This is an issue of his priorities. And that's what Jesus tells him in his response. Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. So Jesus is playing with words here. The dead burying the dead refers to the spiritually dead burying the physically dead. But notice as he says this, there's really three categories of people 
aren't there? There's the spiritually dead, there's corpses, and then there's you, disciple. There are three categories of people. And so what he's starting to do in explaining this to this guy is saying, you're separate, you're distinct. My followers are outside of that sort of functioning world system. There is a, a, a bunch of spiritually dead people doing spiritually dead things. You're outside of it. And as someone is outside of it, you, your job in following me is to be about the work that I've set you on. Your job is to be about the work of proclaiming the kingdom. There is a separation and there is a prioritization in what Jesus is telling the person. In other words, whether I'm here or not, this world is going to keep turning. Banks are still going to lend money. People are still going to buy cars. Corporations are still going to sell things. Criminals are still going to commit crimes. Governments are going to do governmental things. Whether I'm part of it or not, it's going to keep turning. The disciple of Christ, while we have to physically live in the world and to an extent interact and be part of it, we've been called out of it. And we have been given a new set of priorities. It is no longer simply living life. It is now being bound up in this kingdom work. And that is exactly how Jesus frames it. Notice he doesn't say, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, follow me. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. Jesus is linking, following him, and proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus is telling this man and us that the one who follows him is conscripted into the saving work that Jesus is here to accomplish. And Jesus is telling this man, by implication, that his job is to prioritize that work over anything else. Jesus is here, after all, to solve man's ultimate problem. The spiritual deadness of mankind, death itself, the penalty of sin, an eternity facing the righteous wrath of God. Jesus is here to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And doing that is what is really important. Whatever other problems or priorities might exist in life, including the real burden of having to bury what I can only assume as a beloved father, being spiritually dead and under the wrath of God and fixing that is the priority, period. It is the biggest issue that anyone is going to face. And what Jesus is doing on the road then and now, seated at the right hand of God, working through his church, his body, is the most important activity in the world, period. Everything else, everything else takes the backseat to it. And the disciples of Christ, we are saved out of the world to participate in the redemption of the world. And as such, we should see that work as being the priority, the priority of our lives. It's to be a priority over our own safety. When we live for Christ and proclaim Christ, persecution is possible, but it's to be our priority even over our own safety. It's to be our priority over our own self-interests. Look, it's, it is so much more pleasurable uh, to, to, to watch a movie, have a dinner with friends, or play pickleball or something than come to evening service. It's so much easier to, to find uh, uh, you know, something fun to do versus going to a, a, a Bible study, having to pack up the kids, find a babysitter, whatever else. But Jesus' mission is to be my priority over my own self-interest, over our own self-interests. It's to be our own priority over our own relationships as well. We can lose people in our lives by following Christ, by proclaiming Christ, and simply by following Christ in general and what he commands. And again, think about this guy for a second. Now, maybe, maybe 
he again is a single child and his dad's a widower and no one else exists to take care of him. But chances are the guy had a wife. Chances are there were other kids. Do you think that they're going to understand this man's decision? Do you think they're going to approve of this man's decision to abandon the, the bearing of his father and to follow Jesus? No, absolutely not. That is going to cause rifts in that family. It's going to cause harm. There's going to be folks who are going to be mad about that for a long time. I'm guessing his mom's not going to be super happy about it. It's probably the case. This is probably going to tear his family asunder to some extent for some period of time. And Jesus is literally telling him to prioritize that work over those relationships. It's also to be our priority over good things in our lives. Like there, are, there are clearly bad things we can let take priority over participating in God's saving work in the world. But just an equal danger is letting good things take over. Uh, just an equal danger is letting good things take over. It's a, it's a similar danger, and we can let good things take on an outside place of priority in our lives. For the disciple of Christ, if we understand what our Lord and Master is doing, we should see that work as being the priority in life. Now, please, 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 don't misunderstand me. This does take wisdom in practice. We still have to work and eat. We still have God-given responsibilities to our families and other things. It's not as if this is a call for every single person to quit their job and go be a street preacher. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There is wisdom. But he is communicating first and, and uh, more fundamentally that we have been called outside of this world and simply living our lives and whatever that looks like is no longer our priority. Our priority is to each other, to him, and to the kingdom. It's to our brothers and sisters, it's to the kingdom. It's to be our central priority in our lives. And this is a reminder that I, I can stand to hear often. It's a, mandra, a reminder I imagine everybody in this room can stand to hear often because we can so easily let not just bad things, but good things, again, creep in and take an unwarranted, outsized place in our affections and our schedule. Sometimes it's even possible to forget that we are the instruments of God in this world. We aren't called the body of Christ for nothing. We are the tools that Jesus uses to tend his sheep, to gather his sheep. Jesus calls his sheep through our prayerful proclamation of the gospel and giving. Jesus tends his sheep through our body life, whether that's the preaching of the word or fellowship or the administration of the ordinances. And Jesus protects his sheep through the encouragements and the warnings that we deliver one another, as well as the prayers that we pray for one another. Our participation in Jesus' saving work is not optional. It is indispensable to that work. And Jesus' correction of this man reminds us that if we lose sight of the priority of that work, it is inevitable that we will neglect it. Jesus' correction of the second man is a reminder that we must never let that happen. Our priorities, rightly applied, must be the kingdom of God. We must let everything else in our lives derive its proper place and priority and perspective in light of Jesus' mission and in light of what following him looks like. And that's his point in the second encounter. Now, as we approach our third encounter in verses 61 and 62, I do feel compelled to offer a slight disclaimer. Uh, there is definitely, as you may have noticed, some overlap between these encounters and these errors. And if we were going to say the two encounters are most similar, it's probably number two and number three. But there is an important distinction, I think, that we can benefit from. 
And so as we look at this one, I've titled it the commitment to following Jesus. If you're taking notes, this would be the commitment to following Jesus. A little different than priority. So in, this, uh, in these verses at 61 and 62, we read, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So kind of like number one, we see this man approach Jesus but at first blush, this feels very similar to what the second guy said, right? The first guy wants to, I'm sorry, the second guy wants to bury his dad. This one wants to say goodbye to his dad. It's ultimately something they want to do first, involves family, a lot of overlap. Um, and also, too, let's just all point out that on the surface, on the surface at least, this also seems somewhat reasonable. I was thinking of a, like a silly analogy of it this morning, but just imagine if, uh, if, if Patty Nevins asked Tim Nevins to pick up some groceries on the way home. And he chose, for whatever reason, to stop at, you know, Trader Joe's. And on the way there, he meets some traveling guru. Because where else are you going to meet a traveling guru if not Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, right? Like, it's one of those. You're not going to meet him at Safeway. It's going to be one of those two stores. And so, and so he, he finds this traveling guru, and he is just enthralled with the guy. And he decides that he's going to leave and follow him and, and go, I don't know, Arizona. Who knows? And he never bothers to tell Patty what he's doing. Like, she's going to put a missing persons report out for him within 24 hours, right? Like, a notification to one's parents that you're going to follow this traveling guy is probably a, you know, a reasonably important thing. But that doesn't appear to be what this guy is doing. This is not a polite notification to his parents that he's not going to be home for dinner. This is not a, hey, honey, my brother's going to take care of you for a little while, so I'm going to follow this Jesus guy type thing. And my evidence for that is the fact that when Jesus responds to him in verse 62, it indicates that something more is going on because Jesus warns this guy about not looking back. He warns him about not looking back, which tells us that this guy has some degree of reluctance in his heart. Now, there's also some degree of sincerity. After all, he is the one who is coming to Jesus. He approaches them. He offers to follow him. And he is technically saying he's willing to leave his family behind. If this is a 100% decision, he's somewhere on the 60% at least in terms of following Jesus. He's not... He's not uh, he didn't get asked and is wobbling. He seems to want to do it. The problem, though, is that his whole heart is not in it. This guy is coming to Jesus with divided loyalties. His heart seems to be dragged down by the cost of leaving his family behind. He is approaching Jesus with hesitancy. Not so much that he doesn't sign up to follow Jesus, but enough that following Jesus is not where his entire heart is at. And that's a problem. That is a big problem. That is not how you come to Jesus. We don't approach Jesus as if he is one option amongst many. We don't approach Jesus as if we could take him or leave him. The disciple who follows Christ must follow Christ with an entire commitment, an entire commitment. It is a wholehearted embrace of what Jesus is for us, and it is a wholehearted embrace of following Jesus as he directs. Now, when I say it's a wholehearted embrace of, 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 of what Jesus is for us, I mean the person that signs up to be a disciple of Christ must recognize that they are a sinner who deserves the eternal wrath of God. And just linger on those words for a second. Think about how terrifying and weighty they are. We deserve an endless, unending punishment for what we think and what we therefore love and do. 
And Jesus is the only way, the only way in which we can receive forgiveness for our sins and have that wrath taken away. So the person who comes to Christ, they don't come to him in a wishy-washy way. They grab hold of him with all of their heart. An analogy would be if I'm, you know, in a plane and uh, we hit a storm and the, the plane goes down over the ocean. And miraculously, I survive, but it's a nighttime storm. The waves are crashing and my strength is gone. I know that in moments, it's inevitable. I'm going to sink down and die. And in that moment, some sort of flotation device, you know, comes across my path. Something that I can climb onto and, and, and be a refuge for me. I am going to grab that thing with all of my strength, and I'm going to cling on to it until I get to dry land. And that is what coming to Jesus looks like. That is what Jesus deserves. He is our only hope not to drown in the righteous wrath of God. You come to him as your only hope, and you grab onto him with your whole heart. Anything less than that indicates you don't understand who he is, who you are, or how desperately you need him. And this man in our text, unfortunately, is not coming to Jesus with that perspective. He is trying to grasp onto that flotation device while holding onto his luggage with the other hand. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. That luggage is going to be the anchor that drags him down. And just as we come to Christ with a wholehearted embrace of what Jesus, or who Jesus is for us, so too must the disciple wholeheartedly embrace following Jesus as he directs. That is the flaw, by the way, in my flotation device, because eventually you get to dry land and you can discard the thing that you were saved by. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is not a means to an end, as if he was merely the insurance policy against hell. Coming to Christ to be his disciple, to be a Christian, necessarily requires following your master around where he guides and doing what he directs. There are no part-time followers of Jesus. There are no summer intern disciples. No one gets to say, I will follow Jesus in this area of my life, but not these. And no one gets to, after grabbing hold of Christ, the saving work that he's done in their life, politely decline to embrace participating in that mission as well. The disciple of Christ, the follower of Christ, the Christian, must have an entire commitment, a wholehearted embrace of what Jesus is for us and of following Jesus as he directs. And brothers and sisters, if there is anything in our lives challenging that commitment, if there's anything dividing our hearts, going back to that ocean analogy, if we're trying to hold on to any heavy luggage, it is a deadly danger to us. And that is also what Jesus' response makes clear. Jesus gives this man a really dire warning, given the seriousness of the error here. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, it may be obvious, but let's say it anyways. Just looking back is a really bad thing. Just looking back is a really bad thing. We've got two really interesting examples of looking back in the Old Testament. The first one is Lot's wife as they were leaving Sodom. And she was, she was, she was killed. She was punished. She was turned into a pillar of salt. The other big example that we see is Israel in the Exodus and in the wilderness constantly turning back in their hearts to Egypt. And a whole generation perished in the wilderness because of it, without ever seeing the promised land. And that seems to be Jesus' intent here. Looking back is being unfit for the kingdom of God. That is a bad thing. That is a matter of life and death. We must not miss the seriousness of Jesus' warning here. The person who comes to Christ with a divided commitment that is never repented of 
will prove themselves to have never been his in the first place. And these disciples can look good in the first place. They can. The guy in our third encounter, he made a good show. If you were watching, you'd probably say, yeah, good for you. All you want to do is say goodbye to your dad or mom or whoever. It can look good at first, but it won't last. When trials come, they will fall away. They may look faithful for a while, but when they have to start making those daily choices between doing what Jesus directs or doing the thing that they love, they will find themselves living a fruitless life. As I was writing this, that that immediately reminded me of the parable of the soils. And interestingly enough, Jesus just taught that parable in chapter 8. Turn there, if you you will, Uh, chapter 8. And just for for the sake, I'm not going to go through the whole parable, but essentially Jesus is describing someone, him, sowing seed on the road. And the seed hits four different types of soils, four different reactions, four different heart conditions to the gospel and the third one is the one that's applicable. He describes it as uh, the seed which fell among the thorns. And after, immediately after giving this parable, he, dis- he uh, explains it to his disciples. And in verse 14, he says, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no f- fruit to maturity. I think we're, ta- we're, we're looking at a third soil type person here in this guy. Jesus also, right before our text in chapter 9, uh, in verses 23 and 25, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to lose his life, I'm sorry, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. For what is, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's a perfectly timely warning to this guy. Now, this is not merely a warning to would-be disciples of Jesus. This is a helpful reminder to those who are disciples of Christ in truth as well. Those who have come to Christ with sincere faith and repentance, we are not immune to having our hearts tempt us away to other things. None of us that are Christ's in truth will ever fall away or fail to be saved on the last day, but we can pierce ourselves with griefs and sorrows as we let other things reduce our wholehearted commitment to our Savior and our Lord. This is a timely warning to anyone who is or who would be a follower of Jesus. And we don't know, unfortunately, whether this man ended up clinging to Christ with the sort of faith that Jesus demands, but as we read this encounter and as we hear what Jesus is saying, I hope it's clear that we can't have one foot in and one foot out when it comes to being a disciple of Christ. Following Jesus is not a joke. It's not something lighthearted. It's not something on par with choosing what career to follow or whether to buy a house or where to buy a house. It isn't a part of our life. It's our whole life. It's not an aspect of our identity as in I'm a father, husband, uh, executive, and a Christian. No, it's, it's our central defining reality. It's not simply a commitment we make. It is the commitment that we make in our life. And that is what Jesus demands of those who follow him. Now, between these three encounters, we see the high call of following Jesus, or as I said at the outset, we could call it the hard call of following Jesus. And it is a high call. It is a hard call. We have to understand the reality of Jesus' saving mission, and we have to approach following Jesus with both the right priority and the full commitment that he demands. Now, but I would be remiss. I would, of course, be remiss if I didn't end our time this morning by pointing out that no one, no one is going to do that perfectly. 
No one is going to do it perfectly. No one comes with a perfect understanding and, and faith in what Jesus did for them. No one comes to Jesus with a perfect set of priorities or a, 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 a completely untainted heart. And thankfully, we don't have to. The beauty of what Jesus did, what he set his face to accomplish, is that it doesn't ultimately depend on us. He accomplished what he set out to do, and it is his perfection, his perfect sacrifice and his perfect life that is counted to us, that is the basis upon which we are accepted by him. We don't have to meet this high call in order to be accepted by our Lord and Savior. I'm going to say that again. We don't have to meet this high call in order to be accepted by our Lord and Savior. But, but, we who have been washed by the blood of Christ should make it our heart's desire to live worthy of that unthinkable kindness. We should, because we have been so loved by our master, follow him as he deserves and make it our ambition to make progress in that. And so, brothers and sisters, as we end our time, let's consider where we individually may be neglectful in following Jesus. And that's probably going to look different for every single person in this room. But, and I could probably list, you know, spend the next 20 minutes just going through questions, diagnostic questions and the like. But one, one thing I do kind of want to call attention to, one place where I think it doesn't get uh, enough, um, enough area of emphasis and focus is on the local church. It's on the local church. I'd be willing to bet that if we all just paused right now and we all broke up into groups of four or five and we had a quick conversation, how do you apply this in your life? Most people are going to say something about praying for the lost or evangelism. Talked a lot about participating in Jesus' saving work. It's probably going to be a very common application point for most people. And please don't get me wrong, that's a good application point. Take that home. That's a good one. It's very explicit in the second encounter. But the local church, the local church is the engine by which God accomplishes his saving work in the world. I've alluded to it a couple of times. I'm saying it more explicitly. The local church is the engine by which God accomplishes his saving work in the world. And, and our personal evangelism, our faithfulness to Jesus, our growth in the faith, it's not meant to be something that happens in isolation. It is meant to be something that happens in community. We are meant to be members of a local church in fellowship with one another, pouring our lives into one another, both in formal ways, whether that's teaching or ushering or, or whatever else, and informal ways, in one-on-one uh, uh, prayer groups and Bible studies and mentorship, uh, discipleship, th- those sorts of things. We are meant to be pouring ourselves into one another. And so as we think about whether or not we are, you know, have the right priority and the right commitment to what God is doing in the world, let's not forget that that should look like a rigorous and involved life in a local church. Ask yourself, you know, what does your attendance look like? And I don't mean Sunday morning. Sunday morning is easy. I mean evening services. I mean midweek Bible studies. I mean prayer meetings. I mean those sorts of things. Now, granted, there's all sorts of reasons why people can't hit those 100%. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to lay an obligation on you. But what is your, what is your participation in this church look like? Are you consuming more than you're giving or the reverse? That is one very legitimate barometer for whether or not we are understanding the priority and we have the right commitment to what our Lord is doing in the world. Now, whatever that looks like in your lives, I do pray that the Holy Spirit will help us see where we might be branching off from following Jesus. I pray that he will expose it 
and bring us to swift repentance, even as we remember that we follow a kind, gracious, forgiving, and compassionate, loving master. In fact, let's ask the Lord to do just that. Oh, Lord, you are, in some ways, Lord, a, a, a hard master. You don't let us simply coast or, or relax or live the way that we want. That would be unkind, Lord. You call us to where our hearts ought to be, you, on you, and on what you're doing in the world. You don't let us merely continue to drink at, at cisterns that aren't ultimately going to fulfill us, Lord, and you continuously call us back to you and your purposes in the world. And to whatever extent, Lord, uh, those in this room, myself, those who are hearing, need to be encouraged or rebuked, Lord, to remember those things. I pray, Lord, that you would do that in our lives today, this morning, this week, that we would be folks who are, are renewed in our passion for our glorious Lord and Master and what he is doing, what you are doing in this world. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.